My name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Embers to Excellence. My goal is to explore the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. In addition to leadership, I like to discuss mental health, PTSD, and overcoming adversity. If you have a favorite episode, I would love to hear about it. Message me through social media or my website, and I will share some free tools to help you achieve your goals. Please like, subscribe, and leave a review. If you haven't purchased your copy of my book, Fireproof, please grab a copy today. Thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Mike Liguori. He is a former Marine, a published author, and founder of Live Your Truth Media. His memoir, The Sandbox, Stories of Human Spirit and War, uh, chronicled his two combat deployments to Iraq and transition from the war. Uh, in the book, Mike gives readers an honest, gut-wrenching portrayal of not only the, the camaraderie built during the war, but also the toll it takes afterward uh, on the men and women who have served and how his transition impacted his belief system. And then you fast forward and you, your, your next book, the, the Road Ahead and Miles Behind, a story of healing and redemption between father and son. Uh, this is another kind of memoir talking about uh, a road trip that you took with your with your father and uh, healed your relationship. And um, and I want to talk about both of those books. Uh, but first, let me let me say thank you for uh, allowing me to have this opportunity to to talk with you and and really learn more about you and, and your journey. Yeah, thank you, Dave. I really appreciate it. And thank you for your time, man. So I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Yeah, well, let's uh, let's start off where it all began. Uh, where were you born and raised? And can, can you tell me a little bit about your path to becoming a United States Marine? Yeah, absolutely. So I was uh, born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area. I lived there a majority of my life. Um, and, you know, I had a pretty, I would say a pretty normal childhood from the sense of, I didn't have a, a total, um, I would say I didn't have a, too much of a disruption, but I felt like I had a, uh, I felt like I experienced a lot of what kids were going through at that time, which was the divorce rate was increasing, uh, amongst families at that point. And, uh, I was eight years old when my parents split. So, I said, I'm going to, I want to tee this up because this goes into my whole entire story. But, you know, for me, from the ages of eight all the way to 17, I lived out of a duffel bag. And I was bouncing around from mom's house a couple nights a week, then going back to dad's and then going back to mom's house. And every other weekend was switching off with my mom and dad. So there was a lot of transition very early on in my life, which I think equipped me uh, to travel uh, to be nomadic in nature and also prepared me for the military. Little did I know at the time that it was actually preparing me for the military. And so, you know, I lived in a pretty safe town in San Carlos, California. Um, you know, had had a decent amount of friends at the time. But the most pivotal day for me was September 11th, 2001. I was a senior in high school. Uh, I was in chemistry class. And uh, I had recognized at that point in time when the two towers were hit that I needed to do something 
much bigger for my life. And what I mean by that is I was going to go to college. I was going to go play junior college football at the time and then transfer to Notre Dame, which was my dream to go play college football. I probably, when I was a kid, had watched the movie Rudy more times than you can possibly count. Um, I used to pretend throwing the football to myself in the backyard and then play quarterback and receiver. And that was my dream was to go to Notre Dame and play football. But that day in itself made me completely pivot my life plans that I had. There was something that drew me to service. There was something that drew me to doing something much bigger than myself. And so when that happened, I ended up going down to the recruiter's office on September 12th, 2001. And there was a line out the door of men and women ready to sign up to join the fight. I had never seen anything like it at all. But I knew that I had to I had to be a part of this. So I stood in line, but impatient as most teenagers are, I was like, ah, after 10 minutes, I just went back, <laughs> went back home, came back the next day. Line had kind of died down a little bit. But again, 10, 15 minutes, went back home. I finally go a couple of days later and get in and I go in and meet with the Marine recruiter after talking to a buddy about military service. And he had told me that the Marine Corps was going to do something for me that no other branch could do. And I said, well, what, what is that? Because the Army's offering me 15 grand in the sign-up bonus and the Air Force has given me eight grand. What are you giving me? He said, an opportunity for you to prove yourself. And being an athlete, being a bit of a competitor, when someone says that to me, I'm like, oh, you want me to prove myself? I'm going to show you. And so I ended up, on November 11th, uh, 2001, which is, was the day of my 18th birthday I was born on veterans day. So, you know, if you want to talk about destiny and, you know, free will, I think I was born to be in the military being born on November 11th and also signing up for the military in 2001. And, uh, I ended up joining the Marine Corps that day. And I remember telling my mom and my dad that that was, what I wanted to do with my life. And so I ended up doing four years in the military from 2002, 2006, uh, did two tours in Iraq from 2004, 2005, and a nice little three month break. And then went back again for another eight months. And then I got out in the summer of 2006. Where, uh, where were you deployed at in Iraq? I was, I was my first deployment, I was in Al-Assad, Iraq, which was at the time what I found out was one of the world's largest air bases. A lot of people don't know this, but uh, Iraq has two of the world's largest air bases in the Al-Ambar province, Al-Assad and TQ, uh, which is Al-Takadam for those of you that are not familiar with um, military abbreviations or what we called it. So I was deployed there the first time uh, to Al-Assad and then the second go around, I was at TQ. And then did a little stint over at Camp Fallujah during the elections. And and now just for those that, that aren't veterans or familiar with the Marine Corps, every Marine is essentially a, a rifleman, right? Mm -hmm. You're yeah. you're you're infantry, you're you're trained yeah. to to be boots on the ground. Um and and then did you have another role other than infantry? Uh, you know, um, mm -hmm. what was what was the the job that you did in the Marine Corps? 
Yeah, I was a motor transport driver. So I was a, uh, as they say, a grunt with a license, <laughs> so to speak. Uh, but yeah, all, all Marines are infantry men. We're all trained as basic riflemen. And that was the beauty of the Marine Corps as well, is that um, you were, you had, you were adaptable. And they taught you that anybody could do your job and you can do anybody's job. And, you know, when you're, when you're in the Marine Corps, it's really about the team and the, and functioning as a unit. And so being able to learn the basic skills of being a rifleman and knowing that I could fight alongside the grunts, but also if I needed to, I could hop into a truck and utilize my driving skills that the Marine Corps taught me. Um, being versatile in that way was, was, was really great. And I think it's something that makes Marines incredibly valuable. Um, and, you know, that's not to say any of the other branches don't have their versatility or skill set, but what it does, you know, speaking from experience with Marines is that Marines are very, very good at doing things on the fly. And they're very good at being versatile and adapting to conditions, whatever they may be. And that time that you were over there in Iraq, and, and this is another piece that, yeah. just, that just struck me. As a truck driver, I think um, a lot of people when they hear that they're like, Oh, well you drove a truck, but in context, that was like probably one of the most dangerous jobs over there at that time with all the IEDs. Mm. And there wasn't a whole lot of defense for you guys, you know, like mm. later in the war, you know, they had combat engineers that had, you know, there was technology that uh, would prevent remote detonation of IEDs and, you know, vehicles that were uh more well a lot more armor and mm -hmm. impact resistant essentially you know uh whereas early on you're over there and i, I mean I, I just i can only imagine how tense that must have been because you're driving and I'm sure you were doing a lot of those trips in the dark as well. Yeah. Um, what, uh, you know, I, I know just from reading a little bit about you when you came back uh, in transitioning back to civilian life there, as with a lot of veterans that were over there at that time and, and then, and later, that transition out of the military um, after being in combat, mm -hmm. probably a lot of like negative feelings toward the civilian population and struggling with PTSD. Um, what was your experience like? Yeah. So, you know, you were, you, you kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier when you were talking about, you know, the day in the life of a truck driver in a combat zone. And uh, I to sum that that part up. It's uh, you're waiting. You're waiting to die. You just are because you don't know what pressure switches for a landminer there. There's triple stacked landmines. There's IEDs. They're being hidden, you know, using washer and dryer tires and they or them, uh, the insurgent force in Iraq. You know, you're driving by and you're just kind of waiting and wondering for something bad to happen. And, you know, 
the conditioning that happens over 15 months of combat deployments, waiting for this, you know, imminent death, going through boot camp and basically looking to the left and the right of you and having a drill instructor tell you that some of you are not going to come back. And then going through the combat deployment and saying, some of you are not going to come back. Fighting a war that at the time was a 50-50 split. Some people, majority of the country, you know, half the country, you know, being the U.S. was, we should be over there. We're fighting terrorism and we're preserving our freedom. And the other half was like, we have no evidence that the Iraqi people or the government in itself was even responsible for the attacks on 9-11. And then you also had the division in Washington as well in terms of politics. What side should we be on? So imagine as a 20-year-old man or 20-year-old Marine driving a truck, dealing with these external situations that are outside of your control. And in your mind, you're going, why am I even here in the first place? Now couple that with the fact that at any point in time, you could be running over a landmine and it doesn't go off. And I think for me, Dave, that was the biggest thing that really shook me when I transitioned out of the military was... It wasn't the fact that I never ran over a landmine. It was the fact that I had probably ran over more than I could even fathom. And I'm still here. Completely unscarred. Walking away with with no physical injuries, you know, and I thank God every single day that that didn't happen. But when you come home, you do not recognize the mental toll and the brutality that happens on your mindset when you have prepared yourself to die and you don't have a plan and you're 20 years old and you're ready to just like give it all up because you know there is a very, very high probability you may not make it back. You may lose an arm. You may lose a leg. You may not be here anymore in the physical body to transition home with no plan for your future because you have been prepared and conditioned in the service that death is a very real thing. And I think for a lot of people, we do not give as much credit to the military as we should, because the ultimate sacrifice is putting one's life on the line to preserve freedoms. But we also don't recognize as well that when these men and women do serve in the military and then they get out of the military, We do not recognize that they have put themselves in that place, ready and willing and able to die for a cause of the things that this country was founded on. But our society, when they integrate back in, we don't really bring a ton of awareness to that this transition that these people had prepared to die. And most of them did not have a plan. Most of them do not have a really, really strong support system. And again, I'm speaking from experience from 2007, 2008. But our society has never really prioritized the fact that these men and women are willing to put their life on the line to preserve and sacrifice themselves for the freedoms that this country was built on. And we ignore it. We sweep it under the rug. So imagine now that here I am at 23 years old and survived two tours in Iraq. I actually, unfortunately, lost more friends after we came home than I did when we were over there to drinking, car accidents, motorcycle accidents, suicide. And that's what I want to highlight here is that transition process. 
And for me, I almost became a statistic of the transition process as well, because that support system that I was speaking about was not there. I didn't know what it meant to have a plan, to plan for the future, to, you know, step-by-step process. Everything in the military was like a run and gun, wing it kind of thing. But you at least knew that if you came home from the battlefield, so to speak, or came home from training, you had a place to go to. You had the chow hall was open. The military gave you clothes. When you get out of the military, you don't have any of that. So that transition process for me was very difficult because one, I was ready, willing, and able to sacrifice my own life for something I believed in, which was freedom. That the second part was, is that when that didn't happen, so plan A was probably not going to make it home. Plan A doesn't happen. My plan B is like, all right, well, I guess I got to go to college. But no plan C, D, or E. There was no steps, nothing. I just went to school. And I realized at that time that I had no effing clue what I was going to do with the rest of my life. So here I am, sophomore year, after my freshman year of college, I'm transitioning pretty well. Um, Or at least I think I am. I'm making friends. And I've always been able to make friends in, in situations. But then sophomore year starts. And I get a letter from the Bush administration. And this is about 2008. My dad opens the letter and he reads it to me over the phone. He says, I've been recalled and for a pre-screening to go back to Iraq for a third time. So as I spoke before, Dave, ready, willing, and able to sacrifice one's life for the freedoms, for the liberties, for the things that we get to do on a day-to-day basis. And I survived tour one and tour two. By grace of God, I get out of there completely unscathed, thinking I've transitioned completely well. And then I get this letter. They're asking me to go back for a third time. And if you're familiar with gambling, it'd be very much like now I'm playing with my own money and not the house's money. And so I started having a mental breakdown in the middle of my college campus. And when I mean mental breakdown, I mean I was panicking, sweating screaming at the top of my lungs, ran to my car, got in my car, drove all the way back to my mom's house. Didn't say, didn't say anything from the moment that I heard that letter. I dropped my phone. I went home. I locked the door to my studio apartment downstairs in my mom's house. And then I didn't come out of my house for 30 days. Did not leave, did not go back to school. I told my mom, I said, mom, they want me to go back to Iraq. And she said, you can't go back. And I said, yeah, because I would die if I go back over there. I was on borrowed time, I felt like. And so that was really hard for me. But that event led to me realizing that on the surface, what looked like it was good really wasn't. There was a whole pile of you-know-what underneath that I didn't know I had accrued over those years. I didn't know that I had no clue why I was here, what my purpose was, what I was supposed to do next. What is it? What good is a Marine going to do in the middle of 2008 during the Great Recession, a housing crisis? There are no jobs. Here I am in school. What am I supposed to do? And that transition process was was very hard. But that was, you know, I would say that was what began a very, very difficult road of transition and healing and uh, self, 
discovery at that time. Can you talk a little bit about how you did end up dealing with the well what happened you know with with that mm. letter when you know because you had to go and report and be screened yeah and and then deal with the tur the turmoil going on inside you and yeah and i'm i'm guessing like most 20 somethings you didn't have the tools to to deal with any of that no so what did, what did you do? Yeah. So that letter, um, that letter prompted me to go to the VA hospital. I knew something was off. I just knew. I, I didn't feel like myself. I, you know, if anybody who's ever gone through a difficult transition or a difficult time, you'll notice there's a heaviness on your shoulders and you can't think clearly. Um, you can't see, you know, so my dad says you can't see the forest for the trees. You have no clarity. I felt like I was just stuck in like a sand pit. Like I was just not moving. I was just sinking down. And I ended up going to the VA hospital and I went down there and I went to the emergency room, the VA Palo Alto. And I said, I need to see somebody. And they said, well, can you tell me what's going on? I said, I don't know, but I just don't feel like myself. And the woman behind the counter just immediately knew what I was saying. And she said, can you do me a favor and just go sit right there? I'll be right here if you need me, uh, but we need to get you some help. Now, I've never been good at asking for help. I've gotten a lot better as I've gotten older. But being a proud Marine with a lot of, you know, machismo and bravado, so to speak, asking for help from the hospital was something that didn't sit really well with me, but I knew I had to go. I, I couldn't do it by myself. It was, it was a weird thing. It was like not recognizing that you want help, but knowing that you need it. And I remember getting escorted up to the doctor's office from, uh, from the doctor's office by these two security guards. And these guys kind of looked like they had just been uh, cut from NFL training camp, these really big dudes. And they're escorting me up there. And I'm like, they're going to throw me in a locked unit. They're going to put me in a straitjacket. Did I do the right thing? At that time, just to give a little context to everybody before I continue the story, you know, PTSD has been labeled uh, a multitude of things over the year. You could hear shell shock, flashbacks, Gulf War syndrome. Those are some of the names that has been used. And PTSD was a relatively newer name at that time, from my understanding, at least. So I was part of that first wave of Iraq war veterans and Afghanistan war veterans coming home and being diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, at the time, I'm going up there to this doctor's office. I sit in this chair and this doctor comes in and says, well, can you tell me what's going on? I said, well, I've been having the same nightmare three nights in a row for the last three months. And Dave, this nightmare was basically me being in a firefight and I would die every single time in my dream. And I would wake up in a panic attack, cold sweats. And second one was feeling depressed, feeling like I was hopeless, uh, feeling like I, you know, then switching gears into anxiety and hypervigilance and aggressiveness and you know, not wanting people to touch me, being avoidant. Um, there were all sorts of 
different symptoms I was completely unaware of. But when he started asking me those questions and I started telling him like, yeah, well, I've been, I haven't been feeling good. Yes, I have been doing this. Am I drinking a lot? Well, I would say I'm drinking more by myself than I am drinking a lot. And he said, you ever heard of post-traumatic stress disorder? And this was after he had uh, conversated with his colleagues outside the door and had me waiting in there for 10 minutes. And again, I have never been to a mental health clinic. I've never received that type of mental health. And to sit there as a grown man in a chair going like, they're going to put you in a locked unit somewhere. You're freaking out. I almost left. But I I'm so glad I stayed because when that doctor came back in, he told me, uh, you have post-traumatic stress. We think it's a moderate to, uh, you know, some to at times severe case. And uh, you need to go talk to somebody. So I ended up going to therapy. And in therapy, I learned how my mind worked. I learned about, you know, what caused PTSD. And just to give a visual for everybody, if you've ever driven a stick shift before in a car, imagine you cannot put your car in neutral. It's either gear one or it's reverse but it never goes into neutral. That's usually what happens. We either get stuck in fight or flight mode in our minds. And it's hard for us. We don't have a middle ground. We don't have a balance. And so for me, um, the transition from PTSD and battling suicidal thoughts and battling a drinking problem and battling you know, low levels of self-worth and you know, imagery and, and love and connection that transition was really difficult. Um, but after years and years of therapy and self-help and development, and it, it changed my life forever. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm so thankful for all the people that were involved and, you know, all the people that were in and out of my life at that time on a personal level, uh, romantic level, and also just a professional level who supported me uh, through that transition as well. So that was, that was the transition. Uh, for me in a nutshell. And and so at some point you went back to school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but well, I was in school when all this was happening. Okay. And so imagine trying to take a test where you got a PTSD and running thoughts and anxiety and trying to study. That, that was a no-go for me. And you played football as well in college, right? Yeah, I did. Right. So I, I would probably say I was a high-functioning um high functioning PTSD patient because I was still doing stuff. I was working, I was writing a book at the time I was going to school and I miraculously, I was still going to class and I was playing football. So how I did all that with what was going on from a mental health aspect, I, to this day, I still don't, I, I don't have an answer for you. I don't, I really don't know. Well, I, I, so in, in my experience, because like I've, I've struggled with PTSD for mm. a while and, and yeah. it took me a while to accept the fact that I needed help. And, yeah. and I was still operating at a very high level in, in the fire department. Mm. I feel like I could have been operating at an even higher level had I not been struggling so bad because like you, I, I wasn't sleeping. The nightmares were horrendous my days off, I was drinking. That was, you know, that, that self-medication was, I mean, when you're drinking with friends and stuff and that's part of the culture, nobody's seeing it as an issue, but man, mm -hmm. was it, you know, because 
I wasn't just drinking with socially. I mean, I was drinking by myself. Right. And and my personal life was falling apart. And if your personal life is falling apart, it's just a matter of time before your your professional life, you know, is all screwed up. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's really what happened to me. But there's that. I, I feel like had you not gotten help, you would have imploded probably. I mean, you would have. I wouldn't be here. I, I wouldn't right. be here. I just, you know, and, you know, we'll just, we'll talk about this because I think it's important. I wouldn't be here. And I think a lot of veterans, you know, and people who are struggling with mental health, you know, help is a really really hard thing to ask for when you're so deep in your mind because you know there's a trap you know that there's a lot of bad stuff happening in there that's not serving you and um you become a servant of your mind instead of the master of it and you don't know what's real so my reality at that time was is that i was hopeless i didn't have any sort of path forward um didn't have an ounce of positivity. The only thing I had that really kept me alive, which was so ironic at the time, because my war experiences and the things that I learned in the military about death and life and, you know, the circle of life, so to speak, where, you know, you're, if you ever heard the saying, Dave, you know, the moment you're born, you're just preparing to die. And for me, it's so profound to hear that because the thing that actually saved me was the thing I learned in the military, which was you don't quit. You don't give up. And as long as you do that, you can't lose. Nothing bad's going to happen. You may have some challenges and you may have some trauma and you may have some encountering some negative situations. Your life is not a straight line. It's not linear. It's a bunch of twists and turns. But as long as you stay focused on overcoming adversity, using your willpower to know that the mission continues on and that it is about the mission. The thing I learned in the Marine Corps was the thing that helped me break through the symptoms of PTSD, to learn how to positively change the way I see myself, to experience true happiness and fulfillment and joy in my life, was simply the fact that if I never gave up, if I kept going to therapy, And there were going to be days where therapy was hard. And there were going to be days where I didn't want to talk to anybody. And there were going to be days where I felt like I needed to pick up a course light. And there were going to be days where I didn't want to go outside and see the sun and experience anything. But I knew that when those days came, I had to make a commitment to myself to go outside the next day. I had to make a commitment that if I missed one therapy appointment, I needed to go back the next way. If I missed something, I needed to do the right thing and reschedule. And that's what I committed to. But the Marine Corps taught me resiliency. So the thing that made me experience and have all of these reactions to these abnormal events, such as war, which we often forget, like PTSD, all of this is a normal reaction to abnormal events. So here I am, the thing that, you know, you could say in a lot of ways was the driver of all the normal reactions to an abnormal event was the thing that saved me. 
which was don't quit. It doesn't matter if it takes you 20, 30 years, just do the work. Just show up every day and just show up the best you can. And don't give up. Yeah, I, I just had a conversation. This is something that was pretty profound for me when I was mm. uh, working through all of my shit. Is uh, uh, are you familiar with the ACE study? ACE. No, tell me more about that. No, tell me more about that. So I um on my website on the resources page, I I put on there just a a graphic that that shows each of the um, items that. Uh, it, it, when you're scored or when you are evaluated, you know, for your ACE score um, and ACE stands for adverse childhood experiences. And you um, there, there's 10 things. Okay. And each one is one point and the higher your score, the more likely you are to, uh, uh, you know, struggle with substance abuse, um, you know, relationship issues, uh, you know, and, and it puts you at greater risk for su suicidality or uh, substance, you know, substance abuse, drug abuse, alcohol abuse. Um, there's, there's all these factors that, uh, you know, and the common sense tells us that, you know, experiences that we have when we're children affect us as adults but when you have a higher a score you're more susceptible to uh experience you know the the symptoms of ptsd but also when you have you know a, a few of these things uh there, there's a couple of ways that you could go. I mean, you could go down this dark path or you could, um, you know, what a lot of people do is they go into a, a career field where it's of service to others, you know, law enforcement, fire department, nursing, uh, you know, the military um, and these acts of service, you know, it's, it's almost like we're in our subconscious serving to protect the the young version of ourselves you know yeah um mm. but the uh the 10 things you know each one again one point and the higher your score the more likely you are to have other issues as an adult so mm. uh emotional abuse physical abuse sexual abuse emotional neglect physical neglect witness uh your mother being battered uh parental separation or divorce mental illness in the household substance abuse in the household uh, an incarcerated household member and with with those and this is something that i think that a lot of people shy away from talking about you know maybe they're embarrassed about you know the the stuff that occurred in their childhood um and they maybe isolate themselves uh feel like nobody could really understand the kind of childhood i had but the reality is is that it's it's like 90 percent of adults have mm. you know uh, I, I think it's like 
between two and four and then like over four uh is when you're at a much greater risk for for all these different uh mm -hmm. negative things and um uh you know just i mean the only thing that you said that stood out was that you know at a young age your parents divorced and that was very common you know i mean my parents divorced yeah. when i was five years old and uh you know and i i have a pretty high a score um my younger brother did not survive my my younger brother he he passed away before he uh reached the age of 40 um and that my youngest brother almost became a statistic um but you know it's like we for me, I went into a career field, you know, I, I joined the Navy and then after the Navy went into the fire service and, and I exposed myself to a lot of traumatic events within my career of choice. And I was already set up to, you know, to be susceptible to PTSD. And then you're also in a culture that you know, tells you, like, you don't talk about, you don't admit to weakness. You know, if you're weak, you don't belong here. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, less than healthy uh, mental health, you know, you're weak. And, and so you don't get help. For a long time and that cumulative effect effect of all that trauma builds up and then you know you're at a point where you make a decision to either become a statistic or get help and mm -hmm. thankfully for me you know I, I went and i got help but you know i i love that you're so open about your experience with with ptsd because I mean, you know, as well as I do, a lot of veterans and, and first responders, they don't get the help they need. And yeah. Um, and you mentioned early in the conversation, the, the auto accidents, the motorcycle accidents, the drinking and drugging. How many of those events were actually suicides, you know, intentionally? Yeah. And, and that's something that those numbers aren't counted in the, the 22 a day, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, um, I don't know, man, I, I really appreciate everything that you are doing, but I, I, we, we focused on your first book. I would love to touch on the second book and, and really can you talk a little bit about your relationship with your father before yeah. you had this road trip, like, you know, I, I mm. imagine it was, you know, you were at odds mm -hmm. and what, what was the event that brought you guys together to travel across the country? Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, your personal experience as well. Uh, that's a, you know, that just speaks to much of your resiliency and your character how much you've just been through yourself. So I really appreciate you sharing that with me. You know, one of the things that I see with first responders and veterans 
when they transition out. And this even speaks to people who are just going through a transition phase in life is, is that they're hoping that purpose drops out of the sky and hits them on the head. You know, the whole Isaac, Sir Isaac Newton thing, the apple's going to hit me on the head. I'll have the great idea about gravity. And then boom, there you go. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. And I want to, I want to share this with everybody listening right now, that it is your responsibility in your life to determine how you wish to move forward. And purpose comes from passion. At least my belief purpose comes from passion. It comes from the thing that you want to do. It's not so much of I wake up and I'm meant to, you know, bake cookies for the rest of my life. That's something that you enjoy doing and you can create your own purpose and you can create your own mission. And for the military folks out there and first responders that are transitioning from those types of roles, your life is only beginning. And it's always a rebirth. There's always a new chapter. There's always a new season in life. You know, we go through seasons and seasons don't last forever. They change. And that military part of your life is a season. That first responder life is a season. And once you're done with it, a new season is going to come to fruition for you. Just like when you were in the military, you had a call to service or as a first responder, you had a call to service. And now you have another call to service. And it's your job to figure that out. And the key is, though, Dave, and for everybody, don't be so hard on yourself to try to figure it all out on the first day. You didn't go to school the first day and it was like, I have to learn everything about arithmetic or geometry. It takes time. It took a whole semester for you to really learn and understand that. And even for most people, if you're like me and that's not very good at math, it took you a lot longer than that. <laughs> So in terms of that, but as I transition into the story, I just want everybody to recognize that new seasons appear in your life, whether you want to have them or not. And for me, the season that came to fruition was after my trauma, after dealing with PTSD in the military, I had recognized that that was only one aspect of the battle I had been fighting my entire life, which was that of relevancy. You see, as young boys, when we see our fathers, they are the first man that we look at and emulate on a subconscious level how we're supposed to operate and be in the world. And for some of you who don't, you know, don't have fathers or mothers, uh, they were either around or not around, grandpa, uncle, first male role model, those are father figures. So my father was physically around but not emotionally available and for a young boy looking and seeking affirmation of his own value in the world and trying to figure out who he is what he does and quote what's his purpose right because kids from a very young age have an expansion of the entire world um i want to be a fireman parents go well parents don't go to their kids well how are you going to do that what's your plan what's your four or five year plan they don't do that to an eight-year-old they go, that's cool. And the eight-year-old goes, I don't care. I'm going to be a dinosaur. I'm going to be a fireman. I'm going to be a police officer. How are you going to do that? No one asks them that. They just go do it. But when we talk about, and the reason why I share that is, is because as we get older, we always have to have a plan. We always have to figure out how to do stuff. And for me, I was a young kid who was like, 
just wanting to tell my dad, I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a fireman. I want to be a police officer. And he kind of just gave me this look like, yeah, okay. So I learned at a very young age that like having that type of imagination and seeking that external value that, you know, I could be an astronaut if I wanted to be, wasn't there. So I ended up in this long, long marathon in this race, Dave, of seeking affirmation and value from my father. Everything I did, any success that I had, looked at, I wrote a book. Yeah, that's great, son. Proud of you. Dad, look, I wrote another book. I got a job at the startup. Look at, I started my own consulting business. There was this whole entire um, path of affirmation. I was just like, Dad, look at this. Dad, look at this. Look at this trophy I got. Look at this medal. And it was like, yeah, okay. And I took that on for years. And as I got into my mid-30s, it was right around late, right around early 2020. And it was at the start of COVID. And we all remember COVID as the worst, one of the worst times in human history. But for a lot of people, COVID did an incredible amount of damage. For a lot, some of people, it was the best year of their life. For me, it was the year of growth. And I had learned through that deep transformative period of 2020 that I needed to rework some things in my life. That what I was doing wasn't working for me. I was settling. I was living a life of mediocrity. I was in a relationship I wasn't really happy in, um, even though I denied it. I was living in an apartment complex that was beautiful, but I didn't feel like it was my home. And I was in this kind of outgrown. And I was in this place in my life where I needed something. I needed a switch or a change. And when COVID came in, we were all forced to sit in our houses. And so, again, going back to the theme of resiliency for Marine Corps, you know, adapt and overcome. So what did I do? I picked up a book. I started reading. I said, you know, if I'm going to be locked in my house and people aren't working, and I'm in the podcasting business too, so I was pretty busy. But I was taking time to just say, you know what, I'm going to read. I'm going to figure this out. And Dave, what transpired after that was the more I started reading books and journaling and thinking about how I was going to come out of this period of lockdown, the more things started happening for me. Answers were popping up, but it was an answer to another question. And then that question I led to another answer. And then all of these things kind of just expanded like a chain link, it was just one chain getting added to the other. And what I found was, is that if I wanted to move forward into my life, I had to encounter the biggest transition and war in my life, which was not the Iraq war. It's the war I've been waging with my father for almost 30 years. So out of nowhere, and I had been thinking this too, Dave, in order for me to move forward with my life, I have to let go of my dad. I didn't want a relationship with him. I was tired of seeking approval from him. And so what happened was I said, you know what, God, I think it's time for me to let him go. I don't want to talk to him. And maybe he's just shutting it down. Well, he heard me because what he ended up doing, he said, I'm not going to let you do that. Actually, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have him call you up a month before your birthday and the worst time in human history. And I'm going to have him call you up and invite you to go out on an 11 day road trip with him while the country's completely shut down. And you're going to spend time with him in a Mercedes Sprinter van, just the two of you. And you're going to spend not only that, but your birthday with him. 
Of course, Dave, you could think that when someone hears this, that they're going to go meet with their semi-estranged father, the person, the man that they've always been seeking approval from, and you're going to go spend forced time with him, which I don't believe it was forced, but time with him. I'm like, you're out of your effing mind. Why would I want to go do that? And so, Dave, when my dad called me and he went through that whole entire story and he started talking to me about everything and how, you know, look at the sights and sounds of America, which, by the way, we were going to be driving through the middle of West Texas. And there's not a whole lot out in West Texas. And I love Texas. But, you know, if you've driven, you know, Amarillo all the way out, there, there's not a whole lot to look at. So. My dad's selling me on this, the dream of the vacation and of this trip. And I was like, I can't do this. There's no way. There's no way. But there was a voice that popped into my head, and I'll never forget this. And the voice said, you need to go on this road trip with your dad, Michael, because it might be the only one that you get with him. Now, hearing those words makes me think about the time that we have on this earth, the time that we have with our parents. As every day goes by, we get older. Parents get older. And that's the circle of life. But here I am, my dad's in his 70s, and he's reaching out to me, asking me to spend time with him. I don't know, David, that's going to be the only trip that we ever get like that. And then I hear my, my heart's beating at this time, and I'm feeling my dad just asking for one less chance to reconcile something. And he's not going to ask for reconciliation. But I knew that that God was asking us for reconciliation. And so I said, yes. And what happened was an 11 day road trip turned into 30 years of therapy. We ended up talking about our past, where we differ, where we're the same. But what I started realizing, Davis, is that the answer I've been looking for all along in terms of my transition of searching for purpose, as I was talking about earlier, starting about my next mission and all the things that I wanted in my life. Because as I went through therapy, I started getting more and more clear by the day of what I wanted. And then recognizing visions change as you get older. You know, when you're 20 years old, you might want a billion dollars. When you get into your 40s, you might just want to be married with kids and just be happy. Things change. What I realized was, is that I learned the power of love and acceptance and realizing that at the end of the day, my mission was to discover love, what it really meant to love somebody for who they are. And Dave, I learned how to love my dad and accept him. I didn't have to like him, but accepting him. And as we healed our relationship, I realized we're more alike than we are the same. And if you get that, you recognize that you have some of the same traits as your parents do. Mom and dad passed on some of the good things, the generational traits and curses I refer to in the book, which is the good things that you have from your parents and the things that have been carrying on in your family for the last 20 decades and generations. And you're probably like, uh, grandpa did that before him and his grandpa and his dad and long lineage of just stubbornness, everything, the stubbornness to drinking, to bad luck, you name it. You, I mean, what people come up with all sorts of stuff. But for me, it was the chance and the opportunity to learn about my dad so I can break the generational curses 
I no longer wanted to be a man that was just so self-involved in his own world because my dad always just loved experiencing the world through his own eyes. I wanted to change. I wanted to connect with people. I wanted to explore the world, but we were still the same in the aspect of curiosity, wonder, joy. And we believe in something much bigger than ourselves. And that's what bridged us together. And I came home, Dave, and what I recognized was is that my life completely changed. I ended up in the course of a year doubling income in my business, healing my relationship with my dad, moving to a new city, bought a house, and got a book deal all within 11 months of that road trip. And all of those things that I just shared with you happened in one month. The one thing I do want to share before I wrap up this part here is that what's the lesson that I learned in this? That in order for us to step into our new mission and new chapter in our life and the new season of our life, for all of you going through a transition, entering a transition, or coming out of a transition, I want everybody to hear me on this. That in order for you to move forward, you have to let go. You have to leave things as they are. You have to forgive yourself. You have to forgive your parents. You don't have to like them. I'm not asking you to like your parents. If you got grievances with them, I'm not asking you to like them. But I am asking you to forgive yourself. Because if you're able to forgive yourself for anything that you've done or you've held against yourself, you'll be able to forgive other people. And then you can let that go. And what happens is a space gets created in your life because you are no longer holding on to the resentment and the anger of what people have caused you in your lifetime or what you have experienced. There is a big freaking gap that's right there for you. And when you let go and you heal and you redeem yourself and you redeem the relationships and you say, mom and dad, I forgive you for what you did. Old boss of mine that, you know, screwed me over for a promotion. I forgive you. When you let that go, you make space in your life. And you're going to look at your life and you go, something's missing. And instead of looking as like an absence of like, oh, my life's ruined. I don't have anything to look forward to. I want to encourage you to look at it as like, there is this big space in my life. What is it that I can create for myself that will make my life be what I actually want it to be? And when I did that, I realized wealth got put into there, abundance, a loving relationship, better friends, a house. I put all, I, I crammed it, Dave. Like all the stuff that was in there, I stuffed that thing. I was like, I'm going to make this the best life ever. And I just boom, boom, boom. And I just put all this stuff in there. So what I'm saying to all of you is, in order for you to move forward, you have to let go. You have to drop the weight. The military service is over. And it was the best time, was one of the best times in my life, but I'm, I'm not an active duty Marine anymore. I'm, I'm gonna be 40 next year, right? I can't go play GI Joe anymore, but that doesn't mean at one point in time that I didn't love what I did. I'll never forget that. But I can't keep reliving in the past of my military service. I just have to recognize that I take it off its shelf, I open it up, and I put all the memories, the good, bad, and the ugly that are in there. And I close that box, and I put it on its shelf. And then I leave it there. And every once in a while, I'll open up the box, and I'll go, oh, yeah, I remember that. Or, man, that was some crazy stuff we went through. But I never carry it with me when I leave the room, the mental room. I love it. I let it be there. So I hope that was helpful for, for everybody. For those listening, 
what what's the best place for people to connect with you and yeah uh, I, I wanted to touch on live your truth yeah can, can you tell me what that is and sure what is your mission through that yeah live your truth media uh is a uh content production company that we focus on helping brands and companies uh build relationships with their online audience so Everybody wants to build an audience and make money with their customers. And of course, that's the name of the game in business. But the real name in the game in business is building real, deeply rooted, connected relationships with your audience and with your customers. And so we produce content to help facilitate that authentic relationship building. Um, and we've done that through the form of podcasting. We've been around for about four years. I love it. Um, I have worked with some amazing people, everybody from Super Bowl champions, Fortune 500 companies, all the way down to the solopreneur who's like, I want to start a podcast and I want to build an audience and I want to have real community and relationships with these people online. And so that's what we do. Um, and so if anybody has any questions on how to build relationships with their customers, wants to start a podcast to really build community, um, obviously from the monetization lens, the marketing lens, but more importantly, from the relationship lens, uh, you could reach out to me, um, uh, liveyourtruth.media. That's the company website. If you're interested in what I'm saying, uh, you know, just about personal growth and development and this journey of letting go to move forward in your life, uh, you can go to my website, mikelegori.com. That's M-I-K-E-L-I-G-U-O-R-I.com. And uh, my books are available for purchase as well on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. And you can buy them on the website as well. Awesome, man. Well, I will have those links as, as well as the link to your LinkedIn page as well. Because Thank you. Uh, you know, I, I follow you on there and, uh, you're, Appreciate it. I, I guess it goes with the territory. You're always producing some pretty cool content, uh, oh, for, thank you. for your stuff. So. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thank you. Well, uh, yeah, man, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time with me today and, uh, yeah, man, what a powerful story. I, um, thank you. I encourage everybody listening check out his websites, check out his LinkedIn page and, uh, and connect with him. Uh, uh, and definitely check out those books and like freaking powerful. Uh, no, thank you, Dave. I really appreciate it. And thanks to everybody for listening. It was an honor. It really was. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review.